Hello, and welcome to the Last Alliance podcast, the University of Alberta's Tolkien Society book study for the fall term of 2015. Join us this semester as we read and discuss the children of Horan. Hope you enjoy it. Uh, hello. 
exactly. This could be your Halloween Please costume. Don't break it. So, <laughs> it is getting more and more fragile. I have to admit. <laughs> anyway, are there any? Oh yeah, are there any uh, submissions for challenges? The challenges uh, this month were write a limerick, password. We could probably someone could probably come up with one. Nick, you can come up with one of these on the spot. A limerick password for Turin's Band of Outlaws. Or pros write a National Geographic expose on the Petty Wars, or visual create a wandering poster for Turin Bellic or both, or any other submissions that you might want to share with the group today.
Bowie is tragic. I was kind of curious about the the all the random camps that have been popping up because it seems that it's it sounds like they basically all just died. So it was basically a bunch of red shirts that got introduced just to get killed. <laughs> it's kind of you know you got a huge host of guys and you know by the end of these two chapters there's just two of them you know. You only got two people left, so it's kind of what happened. <laughs> right. um, I really enjoyed how Turin gave himself a new name, the Dread Helm. The word Dread, I really like because it makes everything, every, everything you apply to automatically cool, and I'm going to start playing it everything. Like the, the Dread Muffin or like the Dread Laptop, just make it sound a little more badass. But uh, The Dread Assignment. Yes. <laughs> Those are all assignments. The Dread Lecture, you know. But my favorite part has to be like the death of Androg. He kind of like redeems himself, sort of, and it's just like, okay, Androg, you may have been a bit of a dick at times, but at least you didn't betray us. You kind of, you know, you did good at, right at the end. So I thought that was very cool. I always have the same. Well, I have lots of things, but one of the things that that often strikes me, and I still haven't sort of figured out what to do with it, is in the death of Belek when you have the wind. It's all like the storms and the wind and all like weather coming in. Yeah, I'm curious, like what? You know, I want to talk about that. Yeah. Rick, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I actually knew it. <laughs> Not only because you did it last time, but also just, just <laughs> I'm nothing if not predictable. Yes. Dan, you're up. Uh, I knew you were going to say that. My favorite part was when I didn't read the chapters because I'm all right working on the website. <laughs> um, Thanks for that, Dan. Well, yeah. Excuses, excuses. <laughs> There's a problem still. But, um, You're welcome, podcast listeners. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think out. My favorite part was not when Bella died. Mm. That's all I got. Okay. Also, can you go to lastlinefeelbay.com? Can you show me? And I'm sorry, everyone. Okay. <laughs> oh, oh, what's that? I said that's oh, okay. Jesse, we're not necessarily on the I Turn and ballet almost. Hmm. 
No, there, there was a bunch of little things that I liked in the chapter. Uh, I think probably the biggest was just how Turin kind of goes power crazy. And uh, just like give himself a new name and he's like really happy and he's like, you know, this is going to be great forever. And then Bella's like, no, because All right, great. Well, uh, let's start with Andrew. I knew you were going to say that, right? <laughs> great. So, Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Shall we begin? Uh, okay, so some of you mentioned Andrew. Actually, uh, yeah, his ending is is good in, in a sense. I, I noticed as you were, or I thought as you were talking, Tristan, when you mentioned Valley, but actually Andrew seems to be from the beginning someone who, who was able to kind of see through Turin. Like he's the one who makes the comment about, oh, like he's the one who sort of resists Turin being the leader of the band, right? He sort of points out, oh, is this how we meant leadership? That we just kill the kill someone and then you know what I mean? Like Androg actually of any of anyone and granted he's the only one of the allies that actually has any kind of sort of personality in a sense. Any personality. Yeah, but but I mean he does seem to have right from the start a kind of insight into how how things work, right? And so to me, it's not a, a complete surprise at the end that he sort of turns, although it is nice. But at the same time, I would, I would also say that he's been the most hateful of Bele. And at the end, he, it's like Bele is bound to the living rock or whatever, and he goes and with his dying breath frees Bele. Yeah. And he's never shown much love for Bella or Turin, so this seems like an odd final act. Hmm. Yeah. So, well, and, you know, as, as much as he may not have liked Bella, and I think Basti, he still, he, he didn't go so far as to betray his comrades and his leader. He was, like, loyal to the end, and he's, you know, you could sort of make the argument that he's, you know, however he, however he may have acted, he is, a, you know, like, you know, a degree or whatever more honorable than me, who just, like, yeah, just like screws everyone over. Thanks, me. Okay. There's this moment where, you know, the first time he gets hit with the arrow, and right away we think that the curse is coming into play, and then Bella heals him. And I, and I want to go back to Bryn, right? Bryn, yeah. Yeah. Uh, to what Bryn said about, you know, it looks, at, it looks for the moment like Bella has managed to overturn Meme's curse. Meme seems to see it that way because he gets pretty ticked off at even more ticked off at Belek than he was before because Meme interprets that action as Belek, in fact, overturning the curse, right? Which raises questions about curses, right, in general, and, and this belief that they can, in fact, be overturned. And then that goes back to, to Morgoth, right? And something else that comes up in this chapter where Morgoth is, in fact, afraid that Turin might somehow come out from underneath his curse. So that's one thing that struck me, and I don't know what anyone has any opinions on that or thoughts. Yeah, Tristan. I I see in some ways the curses as being related back to um, Greek prophecy in many ways. If you look at every Greek tragedy, it starts out with a prophecy of doom, and people think they can overturn it. So that seems to be a common theme that people think these curses can be overturned, but they can't. They just keep coming true, and no matter who it is, they always think, I can escape this, and it 
just makes it worse. Yeah, like if they try and actively <coughs> try and stop it, they end up actually making it happen. Okay. Uh, Bryn and then Jesse and then Alex. Well, I think it's interesting how, you know, from the last several chapters we've been talking about, you know, Turing's colossally bad decision making. Is it him? Is it Morgoth? And it's, I found it really interesting in this chapter that this is, you know, one of the first times in a while that Morgoth has been directly addressed. And it's not really until Turin puts on the helm that Morgoth knows who he is and where he is because he was in the mists of Doriath. And he still sort of had this year where it, it seems like it from reading this chapter that Morgoth's thought wasn't necessarily bent on him in the same way and that, you know, now he knows where he is and he can send forces to him, but it's, you know, the, the curse, it, it doesn't seem until this point that it's, it's really specifically inapt. It's not, it's not explicitly stated that it's inapt as it is in this chapter. Okay. Jesse? Uh, oh, just going back to the, the Greek tragedies, I was just saying a lot of them are a if factor. So like for uh, Oedipus, it's if you kill your father, you'll end up marrying your mother. Or when the guy's eating his wife out of Hades, it's if you turn around, she'll be lost forever with you. So that's what, uh, and that's uh, how it comes into play with this curse. It's always an if. So if Turin seeks power, he will get it. And then he'll come to Turin. But when he doesn't, then it seems to be okay. Okay. Yeah, I was just going to say the smaller curses, like just from a narrative standpoint of the children of Corin as its, as its own story, it doesn't make sense as a storyteller to have the smaller curses come true if you don't expect the bigger curse to come true, or, or that, that kind of deal. So that's why if you're trying to build up the curse of Morgoth as a storyteller, then you have to have all the smaller curses come true, or else it doesn't whole have the same effect, just like narratively. So I think that's why it's kind of important that um, even when it seems like they're overturned, that means curse and it comes <laughs> true, um, because that's just basically a direct parallel to what should happen in the story if you want to make a yeah, that's good. Now remember that Tolkien did distinguish between regular curses and Morgoth's curse, right, in the introduction. What's interesting is that even if Alex is right, which is very likely because it's just Alex, Balak does seem to be able to at least, in some sense, delay the curse, right? And I wonder if, like, like one of the things that, that comes up here again is the, the, when, when Balak and Turin are together, right, when, when the elf and the man are together, things seem to happen, right? It's almost as if you get, a, you get a glimpse of what's possible when the children of Iluvatar are, are in, working in tandem, right? And, and so this, this land of Bowen Hub is kind of this picture of, and, and we had the same thing when they, were, when they were fighting in Doriath, right? It's effective. In fact, so effective that for the first time in the story we hear about Nargothrond, right? And that they even hear a little foreshadowing here, of course, but, but they have now heard of this, whatever's happening, you know, so much so that the elves of Nargothrond are saying, hey, we got to join the fight, right? And Ordred's like, well, no, no, we can't. But there's a sense when the children of Iluvatar come together, good things seem to happen. Yeah, then? Just going back to the, like, curse and whether or not the curses can be overturned, it seems to me that Mim recurses him because he says it will bite again. 
So it's kind of like, oh man, he got my curse, but I'll get him again on the recurse. Oh, green goes to Okay. For, yeah, because I mean, it's quite clear, for he had thus undone his curse, right? But it will bite again. Yeah, it could be. Uh, Jesse. I just want to go back to the angle of uh, how the curse is like maybe magic, maybe mundane, because like, me, me and Dez curse Androg to die by an arrow, but if Androg is going to die, being shot by an arrow is one of the more likely cases. Yeah. So it's not like it be any great stretch of the imagination for me to say you're going to get shot. Yeah. So it should be that it should, it's not like magical curse in that sense. But he is putting this venom into this eyeball if he dies and how I hope he dies kind of deals. I want to go to his last words, which is the last page of the chapter. My hurts are too deep even for your healing. And I want to think that there's something more than just physical hurts going on here. That this is more of a, a kind of typology for a general kind of hurt that men maybe are experiencing or that this band is experiencing. You know what I mean? That there's something more, there's something deeper going on here when, when Andrew makes this statement that to this elf, he was a healer, right? That my hurt, my, my hurts are too deep. Yeah, correct. I mean, as soon as I heard that, I was thinking just like the mortality of men in general. Yeah. Like the elves are great, but they they can't give more life. They can't extend a man's lifespan. You know, and that that tends to be a a, a spot of despair within humankind, within Tolkien terms that they there is a more yeah, and what's the origin of these outlaws again? Uh, some of them came down from yeah. Right, so yeah, that's right. These are these are Uren's people, right? So I mean so they've experienced this loss, right? So, you know, there seems to be that 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 that, that, that Androg is almost summarizing the hurts of, of his whole people in this moment, in some sense, right? And very tragically, right? I mean, I mean, here's a guy who yeah, for all intents and purposes, maybe, well, I don't know, speculate. You know, wouldn't, wouldn't have, obviously wouldn't have chosen this life had he had the choice. But also, even even Turin's arrival, even all the, like, like there's a sense that, that everything has been going against them in some sense, right? Yeah, Alex. Oh, when I read it, my immediately, immediate thought is probably maybe not where I should have gone, but I immediately thought of like an emotional hurt, or kind of the fact that he's kind of a bad guy. Mm. And at the end, he's like goes and he saves Beleg, but he still says my hurts are too deep even for your healing. So for me, that read kind of like even though I did this one good thing, I was still pretty bad and horrible for my whole life, yeah. and like yeah. it doesn't really. I mean, I tried, but it doesn't super redeem me. I don't yeah. know. Maybe that's not how I was supposed to read it. That's I, I got a similar sense too. Yeah. It's like you know, like I've done this lifetime of sort of wickedness, and then I can. Maybe kind of do this one good thing before I die. Maybe my life will be worth something. It's just kind of the, the sense that I get. Uh, I'm probably reading this into it. I don't, I don't. I don't know if we should go here. But I, as you were both were talking, I was thinking of Boromir. But I, I wouldn't say that this is like a, you know we're supposed to be Boromir. 
I, I also got Boromir ordained. Yeah, but Boromir does have this this repentance moment, and he is in fact forgiven. Right, his act of of self sacrifice for the hobbits undoes his action of trying to steal the ring. At least according to Aragorn, right? Yeah. Alex. Yeah, I think Boromir is different because he lived a life of good. Right. With one bad moment, and then redeemed himself in the end. Whereas yeah. Androg led a life of being a pretty bad guy. Yeah. With just one good thing. Just one good yeah. thing. Yeah. 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 All right. Good. Uh, well, let's talk about me. The little bastard. Yeah. <laughs> Literally and figuratively. Yes. I'm sure, I'm sure it's <laughs> I mean, I think no. now. I suspect that when Tolkien uses the word jealous, he's using it in a more classical sense, not in the romantic sense. Despite the fact that our culture tends to go there immediately, thanks to it's not most the, of the romantic <laughs> comedies that we see. Right. It's not the romantic <laughs> sense, it's, it's also romantic sense. Yeah, like the classical like yeah. sense of envy. Right. I just like really like the line, and it sort of describes memes super well, and it's just like when stuff happens on um, on Emma Ruth and they like is just kind of laying there and then like here comes meme sharpening a knife and he's yeah. like <laughs> here it comes and it's like super uh, scary. Yeah. yeah. I mean we, we talked last week about how I mean he hates the elves, right? And he doesn't distinguish between elves, even though Belek is not one of the elves that oppressed him and his people. He just hates elves in general. But but we also talked about there is there is maybe some sympathy for meme. Like he does seem to if we take any of his story even a little bit true, it does seem to suggest that he is an oppressed and marginalized race, the petty dwarves, right? Not only among elves, but even among dwarves, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that doesn't justify this anger and this hatred, but it, it helps understand. Like, it does have a right. bit of a tragic past there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, I got Tristan and Alex and Brittany. I would say that this is the time when the petty part of the petty dwarves' name really comes to fruition. Mm. He's... He's betraying a whole band of people, a whole host of people, because he's really kind of annoyed at Belleg. Yeah, right. Uh, well, what I was going to say is, like, it comes back to what Jesse said right at the beginning. Like, memes and hatred is just, like, so personal. Like, it's not really, like, it's, it's, it's too far to say that he's just mad at elves at this point. Like, when he talks to the orc captain, he says, okay... I want to kill Valek personally, and I also want you to leave Turin alone. Like, he is definitely, like, personally attached to Turin for, like, no yeah. reason. Doesn't he ask for gold for Turin rather than yes. gold for him and Valek? And Valek. Silver and for everyone else, but gold for So you're right. So, so, so it, but it, it is, I mean, yeah, okay. So, it's not romantic, but it does, it does... It's like the it's it's that charismatic like magnetism. Yes, exactly. That, like, it's this idea of Turin, Tur- a betrayal by Turin hurts a lot more than anyone else, right? Because of because Turin is just this, you know, this mag- force of nature, right? Yeah, Turin. Well, it's sort of this theme that you, you get throughout the first stage, where like people as things, like I it, it's sort I feel like it's a, in some way like a material possessiveness on Meme's part, like he's. My friend, mm-hmm. he, you know, he's my confidant, sort of, and Turin is in a lot of ways reduced to a thing, especially since from what we see in like the dwarven culture, you know, paying for a son's life in gold is a kingly thing for the dwarves. Yeah. You know, paying for people in iron and gold is <clears throat> a normal thing for them. That it's that it's a 
a material possessiveness and he doesn't like when someone else comes in the way. Yeah, and I suspect him asking for gold for Turin is in fact an echo of Turin offering to be gold for his son, right? That's the anger and the rage that comes out as, you know. Um, so, yeah, so, but you're right. It is it is interesting, right? It is There is a kind of possessiveness there, which for Tolkien, of course, is one of the biggest, one of the big uh, crimes, right, or vices. Yeah, Nick. Uh, I'm just a little fuzzy on details, but like when Meinlin kind of betrays Gondolin, is there any kind of similar like deal, like selling out? And, and that, or is it just... Yeah, he wants... Uh, he wants Idril, but... Is there, like, any sort of, you know, give me this, and I will give you this? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But he's, he doesn't make a deal of... with the orcs. Like, I'm trying to remember how that... I'm trying to remember how that happens. That's, yeah, yeah. But, like, I... He makes a deal with, uh... Gothard, I think. He does? Does he? Well, I don't know. That's a good question, Nick. Someone's going to have to look at that. But it, it just seems like, you know, this is something that happens more than once. The, someone who becomes, like, envious or jealous of someone desiring this person only for themselves, and then when they don't get that, they sort of sell out everyone they know. Well, yes. And, I mean, one thing that happens more than once, for sure, is betrayal, right? And, which, again, is a very common theme. In fact, Elrond says in the Council of Elrond, in the Council of, of his, in his council, <laughs> You know, that, that, that betrayal has always been our greatest enemy, right? Like, and, and so this is a constant theme where everything seems to be going well and then someone, you know... Um, I actually, I actually when, when he goes to the orcs, I actually sort of saw Gollum going to Shima as too. well, yeah. right? Where he kind of approaches them and he kind of makes his deal, right? But, you know, you, you kill yeah. them and then... Gollum never dealt with Shima like that, did he? He, he met with her before, before, but he never, like, outright said it. Well, he told her, I think, didn't he, didn't he at some point when he leaves them at one point, they, they figure he actually goes to Shelob to say that he's bringing the hobbits in? Yeah. And now he doesn't actually make a deal. There's but no he, like, think, yeah. he thinks that, you know, once she gets him, he'll be able to go through the ball. Yeah, it's kind of like an arrangement they reach. Yeah. So, there's something in there about him bowing for her or something. Or yeah, right. but I thought that, that was before. Day, yeah, in previous days where he, you know, bring to her and she, you know, and he sort of worship her and she would tolerate his life. Right. I think yeah. he'd be more violent in this story. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Or Judas. Yeah. Or Judas. <laughs> yeah, or Judas. Yeah. Well, I feel like every time someone betrays someone, you can read Judas. Okay. Okay, so now I want to go to Morgan. Uh, so, you know, I said last week, and I sort, of, I sort of spoiled it a bit, but one of my favorite lines in this book is this paragraph on the second page of the chapter where, you know, I mentioned how there's a sense in the last few chapters that we haven't heard much from Morgoth, and then you have this big moment, right? Who knows now the counsels of Morgoth? Who can measure the reach of his thought, who had been Melkor, mighty among the Ainur, the great song, and sat now the dark lord upon a dark throne in the north, weighing in his malice all the tidings that came to him, whether by spy or by traitor, seeing in the eyes of his mind and understanding far more of the deeds and purposes of his enemies than even the wisest of them feared, save Melian the Queen. To her often his thought reached out and there was spoiled. So it's almost as if, just in case you forgot, this is, you know, this is really who's, you know, who's in a sense pulling the strings around here. Right? Morgoth is kind of reintroduced in this moment. Uh, and of course, this is very, and this is why I wish I had a fellowship, but this is very reminiscent of what Galadriel says to Frodo and Sauron. Right? If you remember, Galadriel says that Sauron is trying to penetrate her mind, but he's, he's keeping him out. Galadriel learns all her lessons from Melian, 
So, uh, so this is sort of a turning point again in the story where Morgoth again is evoked and suddenly, and then throughout the story we get Morgoth again, right? Uh, which I thought, which I think is very, very cool. So, Jordan, did you have something? Or? No, I, well, yes, I mean, Morgoth, the, the mention of this, we've only scorched his fingertips. Yeah, right, okay. Because that's the line that at least pops up in these chapters. Or right. Very, uh, yeah. We all, it's interesting that we also get insight, more insight into more, it's like in the, in, the, in the course of this paragraph where, you know, we're learning that Morgoth has a kind of insight into the minds of his enemies, we are giving insight into Morgoth's mind at the same time, right, and his plans and how he, you know, he's like, he's, he's pretending to advance so that he can pull and draw them out and the language of the scorched figures, you know what I mean, the scent, which, so it's kind of neat, on the one hand, you know, Morgoth is being revealed as, you know, this one who knows all, but at the same time, we're getting a little insight into Morgoth. And, and again, it, it raises the question about the curse, right? And the degree to which the curse, what effects the curse has. Uh, so, as someone said, Turin puts on the helm, right? And, and we see Beleg and Turin together doing really good work and good damage, yet... Behind that is, of course, Morgoth is kind of on the edges of the narrative, lingering in power, you know, doing his doing his thing. Does anyone have any comments on the? We have a brief mention of Nargothrond and Mordred. Did anyone? Uh... I was thinking about the Mordred thing you're saying. Yeah. And I like how it points out that he has like a bunch of plans and purposes and a path and everything. He's figuring stuff out, and Thor never does. Like Thorin yeah, right. is the complete opposite of he never yeah. has like he never figures out what he's just trying to do. He always seems to be kind of just doing what he's doing. Yeah. And then he gets pushed around, and then he just ends up where he ends up. Yeah. He's, well, yeah, especially What's after that? the battle of a number of tears, but, um, yeah. Well, that's, well, that's a good point, well, right? Well, maybe Melian Yeah, well, but, yeah, but that's a good, that's a really good point, right? And, and it raises the question again of what, it, what actually is the plan for, of the enemies of Morgoth, right? At this point, it just pretty much seems to be survive, you know, just like well, last, last as long as you can. Well, Orodreth has a plan, right? Which is to stay hidden, right? That, that's the plan. Right, and and that seems to be Turgon's plan at this point, right? So okay, so Paulina and Alex and Corinne, Jordan, is your hand up? Yes. Okay, and Jordan. Oh, and Tristan. Oh my goodness. Okay, we'll start Paulina. We'll just go around. So, so like every time the Morgoth is mentioned, and they're talking about how like powerful and evil he is, it just makes me mad, and because I hate the other Valar so much. Like they yes, they could do. You anything, you know, and, and nothing actually happens to Morgoth, spoiler alert, for real, until they actually show up and do something, and then they they just do nothing, and like, even to the people who, who could have been helped, you know, people who aren't the, taking the oath of fate, or like, they could have done something for them, and the only time they really step in is, you know, when Beleg dies, and for example, and there's a wind in the west, it's just kind of like a, hey, I told you so, you know, like, it's just like, <laughs> no, but like, that's all that it is, and they do Nothing, and it just makes me so mad. I hate it. Okay, good. Yes, I want to talk about that. 
Uh, Nick, is your hand up? Yes. Okay. I feel the exact same way because, like, it's when Arendil like shows up and it's like, okay, please come help us. They finally come. And it's like, really, you waited until the last possible freaking second to come in, and it's just like throughout the whole time you're just sitting on your collective asses while your while your black sheep of a brother is like doing all this messing things up. And it's like you could have stepped in at any one moment, but it's like, oh no, we have to keep our distance. And it's like, oh, someone's come to, to beg our help. It's like, oh, things must really be bad. It's like they don't get off their asses until the last possible second. They just like let Morgoth run rampant, and they don't do anything to stop him until the very end. They're probably still mad at me. They're the ones, though. It's not the case. I agree. Uh, okay, I don't know what I want to jump in here. Okay. <laughs> okay, we'll go down the line. The point is to piss Rick off as much as possible. So <laughs> yes, yes. Which the uh, other Valor didn't do, by the way. Yes. <laughs> That's the best. So wait, wait, wait. Is Rick okay, okay, Jordan. Okay, I'm completely. Uh, Except That's a different topic. I thought it, it, it's uh, Ordreth who's king of Marathon. Yeah, I, I thought it was the note about his wisdom is that like he was counted wise by those who would who would counsel like the safety of one's own people as if you know it's kind of he's wise if you count selfishness and just kind of just hiding hiding for ourselves and not caring about anyone else, which I found kind of an interesting way to say that. Uh, Okay, okay, so that now now we got two things going. Okay, Alex. <laughs> oh yeah, I was gonna say the only person but this is after after the Battle of the Number Tears, the Sons of Bane were kept scattered, right? right. Like that was their last attempt. Yeah. Until they just went crazy. Um and then because I was gonna say the only person who has a plan at this point is Ulmo, because the story of Tour is happening at the same sort of time as the story yes. of Touring, right? Yeah. So at this point, really, basically all of the people living in um Valerian right now. That's, that, that's it, they're done, their plans are all done. They're all just wandering and, and waiting until Ulmo sets into motion his plan against Mordoth, and yeah. that's pretty much it. Steel doesn't forget the other Valar. Yes. Yeah, does but anyone, Ulmo's a cool guy. Does anyone have Unfinished Tales here? Crap! Ah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> We've got other books to carry, right? We don't have an office to keep no, us No, but, but you, I mean, Ulmo, the conversation Ulmo has with, uh, I'll have to bring, I have to bring it next Well, no, Ulmo's so, acceptable. So, yeah. okay, so, uh, Corinne. Um, I just kind of want to speak to the part where we're talking about, you know, Ordrek and, you know, selfishness and whether or not his wisdom's good. He, he and so, but he in his way is, he's following Ulmo's plan. Like, Ulmo told Finrod to make Nargothron, make it a stronghold, hide there until I give you the, the sign to go. And I mean, in contrast between him and Turgon, you know, Turgon loves Gondolin too much. That is, that is his big flaw, and he he isn't prepared to leave on that. But Orodreth is is doing the plan that Do that the Umo <laughs> Do the thing. thing. Yeah. yeah, he's he is following the plan of the only Valar that cares about right. Right. So in, in that way, yes, I do think what he is doing is wisdom because he doesn't have enough people to go against Morgoth. And the last time they gathered a huge army to go against Morgoth, they were utterly yeah. destroyed. Right. So he's, I, I, I think it's yeah, so, a little bit harsh. Right, so, so Ulmo is the only one of the Valar who actually seems to have any real interest in what's happening in Middle-earth. And actually that comes up in this chapter, right? Or in the next chapter with the, the Lake of Ilrin, right? And, and, but Ulmo did say to Turgon and Finrod, 
right? This help is not, you're not going to be able to do this. Help is going to come from the West. So you need to hunker down, right? Uh, now, okay, so now I'll do Tristan and then I'll to try to comment on the ballot. <laughs> um, I find it interesting that, <clears throat> sorry, Boedra? Yeah. And Turgon are in communication. And neither one of them says, we should go talk to Turin because he has what seems to be a reasonable army. And he could come help us. He could hide with us. He could, no, it's like, let's just abandon Turin over there. And at the same time, I'm, with this talk of Tour, I'm getting a little bit of insight into the importance of Turin. Because what Turin is doing right now is he's basically attracting all of Morgoth's attention and wrath. And this is helping the grand scheme of things. Because if Morgoth focused on Tour, then thinking long term, things would turn out a lot worse. Because Turin has no great overarching role to play. I mean, a little bit, but not, not huge like Tour does. So yeah, so, well, okay, wow, these are all really good points. So yes, so again, it raises the, I mean, but the, but one question is, is the reason that Turin doesn't have a big role to play because of the curse, Yeah. right? In other words, if there hadn't been, like, we, I mean, this is a question that keeps coming up, right? What if Turin actually lived up to his potential, right? What, you know, but it seems that the curse has, has sort of been part of this, this inability of Turin to really flourish, in a sense, right? In addition to his own, he's got his own issues, right? Um, okay, so now I just open up a whole new can. I want to, I want to start first spend a little time with, with the battle because. <laughs> so because when you read, okay, so when you read of Turin is coming to Gondolin, what you discover is Ulmo himself is not happy with the way the battle are. Is that it? That's the conversation. Um, well, I'm not going to be able to find that text. Okay, so uh, which is which is very very interesting when you read that, and so maybe I'll bring it next week and and we'll read through it just for fun. Because, of that. but on the on the other hand, and even though I'm very sympathetic to the, the question of why aren't the Valor doing anything, what happens when they do do something? Destroy a continent. The whole, all of Beleriand is, is flooded. So many people right? die, yeah, that's great. That's good so, well, it's like, so the, exactly, that's the question, right? If the Valar actually decide, okay, we're going to come in, right? In fact, one of the reasons that they don't come in a second time in the Silmarillion is that very reason, right? Could they not do it with less destruction, probably? They can't, because the Valar are representative of these forces of creation, right? What's that? Yeah, Tolkis. Tolkis could have gone to Because yeah. he would just crush all the little people under his feet. No, no, he'd just go out from the north. Or Orome, or like somebody. Or, yeah, it, it, se it seems like... Somebody other than the Wind and Stars. But Belvoir is like super powerful, so what if he defeats him? No, Tolkis can always leave. That's his whole point of That's the reason for his existence. I mean, my, my, my sense is... Well, there's, so there's two things in play, right? One is, I think that we... For whatever reason, I think, or not for whatever reason, I really think that the Valar are not subtle. I think, like, I don't think they can be because they are in the mythology. They are the forces of creation. Like when Melkor is talking about destroying what the, the, what they're doing, what kind of languages use volcanoes, earthquakes, right? That that's it, you know that's sort of like 
It's like Thor and the Thunder God. When you have a massive thunderstorm, you say, that's Thor, right? It's, it's very destructive. Thor can't do anything gently, right? So, so there, and, and we see this when the Valar come in in the War of Wrath. It's the whole thing is wiped out, right? That, so that's one, one consideration, right? See event. The other consideration is the Valar seem to have, the Valar, there's, there's, like, I think Alex said it sort of right. It's like, in the narrative, curses work because, because you can't have a narrative where the rules don't work, don't apply in certain things, right? So there's a sense where the narrative, the Valar, Vibrin, right, are working to a set of rules, and these are rules that Tolkien, like this is Tolkien's sub-creation, right? It has to make sense. You can't just go around changing stuff, right? You have the Doom of Mandos. And you can't just have the Valar just say, oh, forget the Doom of Mandos, we're just going to go in, because that sort of, that would break this, the spell of what Tolkien is doing in terms of the rules that he's created. A Doom is not something that you can just forget about or overturn, right? Otherwise, what was the point of it? You know what I mean? So I think that's another part, just narratively, that, that has to kind of come into play here a little bit. But it doesn't, it doesn't resolve, I mean, I don't think it's a question that can be fully resolved, right? Uh, okay, Nick, and then Alex, and then Corinne. Well, when, like, you know, like you say, when they do come and they, you know, rip everything apart, well, that's because they waited until, the, like, the last possible second, because when you have, like, some kind of infection, you deal with it right away when it's manageable. But then what they do is they just like wait all this time until it's like so deep rooted they have to just like cauterize everything because they waited so long. But Melkor was never manageable. Even the first time they went after him, it was destructive, right? But he was never. He was never right. Valerian wasn't as populated than I think. Yeah, well, that's the other thing. Yeah. Okay, Alex and Green. Yeah, I agree that in the narrative, the only time the Valar had to have all out war with Melkor did cause destruction. Therefore, there's really no basis to say that it can't not. But yeah, okay. But anyway, sure. so my points were um, A, about Turin, actually. Mm -hmm. um, I think Turin, a lot of his problem and a lot of the reason that he couldn't, perhaps couldn't have um, a great destiny is his passiveness. Even if he had a great destiny and didn't have a curse on him, He's extremely passive and reactive. Yeah. He's not determined enough to have his own destiny and to go out and fulfill it. Everything he does is in reaction to what someone else is doing. All he does is be pushed around, yeah. which makes the curse even more effective on him. Well, is right. that yeah. like so, a result of the curse, though? Like, is that you know? I think that's well, I think it's just his personality. Because mm -hmm. um, he's that way even in Doria. Um, and then, second of all. With the Valar, I do agree that the Valar not arriving in Middle-earth is a narrative device, but I don't think it's for the reasons you say. I think it's a narrative device in creating the mythology of Middle-earth to, down to today's mythology. The reason the Valar have to be kept in Valinor is because men don't like have them as, they don't really have a connection with them or see them as gods, which would make sense if Tolkien's trying to make a mythology that is coherent with today's mythology. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why they stay. Just for that narrative reason, yep. don't think it makes them a good choice. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, So two points. One, because I've been wanting to do this, and every time we talk about, you know, the, the little curses need to be fulfilled. Challenge to okay. that the narrative yeah. scheme, um, in that not ha like having the smaller curses not go through makes Turin's fall more devastating because that's the bigger, you know, like the rule, like the little curses have to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm not saying it needs to be that way, but I'm like, I just, 
It needs to be challenged. I don't necessarily agree with it, but it just, I'm a contrarian. It needs to happen. Um, and I also think it was interesting with Tristan's point when he was talking about um, Ordreth and Thingol and Turgon all seem to be like within secret communication of each other and like, why don't we help Kirin out? Part of it would, I, I think maybe in some ways they might sense sort of the volatile nature of what happens when you give Turin an opinion and what happens when he, okay, <laughs> when, when he takes the lead and part of Oregon's thing is he, he's definitely more in an isolationist sort of thing, like we are keeping ourselves strong for when we really, really need out and they and in extent like you're not allowed to send orcs out into Nargothrond there you are not allowed to <coughs> deal with them yourself if you want to attract this much attention we're not helping on and I think they can kind of see a little bit the trouble that will happen if they give Turin free reign hmm. to command within their own ranks. I think it also should be pointed out that there's no indication that Turgon or Ordred know that this is a tour ring. This is true, yeah. right? Like he, like Orger says, you know, it's an outlaw who's doing all this damage, right? So, so there's a sense where there's no. First of all, they, you know, there's the, the plan, which is like I think Turgon, maybe even more than Orodreth, is becoming isolationist, right? Mm -hmm. So, but, but, but that being as it, that as it may, right? Both Orodreth and Turgon are following this plan of not to engage, right? Which obviously would say, well, to, to join this outlaw, of course, would be the opposite of that plan. But also, I don't think they. I mean, maybe if they knew it was Turin, that would have, that would change things. But I don't think they but even know it was Turin. Like, who else would have that unless they were? Because I feel like if they assumed it was Turin, then they'd be all over helping him out. Well, it, it, it doesn't say in this paragraph. Like, it does mention that he puts on the helm, but it doesn't say in this particular paragraph that the helm doesn't come up. Right. In this way, before the summer had passed, the following of Turin had swelled to a great force. And the power of Angband was thrown back. Word of this came even to Nargothrond, and many there grew restless, saying that if an outlaw could do such, so, I mean, you'd think that if they had it, the helm was visible and they knew about it, they would know. But even if it's, even if it's an outlaw, it's still somehow related to Uruk. You know what I mean? But they don't seem to really have any idea who this is. Plus, the question, of course, we're going to discover what happens when <laughs> Turin does in fact join with Nargothrond. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, they don't know this, but I mean, we know that. It, it's a bad idea to join your tour, right? Because bad things happen. Yeah, Jesse? Well, I think, too, um, this isolationist policy is just another example of the differences between men and elves because elves can wait a thousand years for the right exact moment, whereas men would be dead a hundred times over or ten times over by the time that came about. And it's not this one, I think it's in the Silver River. Okay, one more thing, or just one more thing in this chapter, and then we'll move on to the next one. And that is on the, uh, the few pages before the end, uh, you have this line about Morgoth. Report of the dragon hound in the land west of Syria came swiftly to the ear of Morgoth, and he laughed, for now Turin was revealed to him again, who had long been lost in the shadows under the veils of Melian. Yet he began to fear that Turin would grow to such a power that the curse that he had laid upon him would become void, and he would escape the doom that had been designed for him, or else that he might retreat to Doriath and be lost to his sight again. 
Yeah, I think that really kind of um, lends weight to the idea that the reason to remove Kaladora is because of the curse. Because now that he's out, all that Morgoth wants to do is make sure he doesn't go back so that he can yeah. still be affected by the curse and so that he can still see Turin. Also, props to Sophia for like realizing that he could be seen in the veil of the belly. That's right. Yeah, what is Sophia doing? She was studying a lot. I saw her earlier today. We didn't come here for school, right? What, uh, any other thoughts on this? This the possibility in Morgoth's mind that Turin is actually able to grow in power enough to escape the curse, and what that might mean. It just says Morgoth is obsessed with power, and he's paranoid. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. that 
if some of the smaller curses prove to be unavoidable and true, that would lend more weight to the curse of Morgoth being unavoidable and true. However, some of the smaller curses were avoidable and could, and you could like get out of them because it's always a question of whether the curse is binding or not. That would lend more weight to the idea that Turin could potentially overcome the curse. The fact that Morgoth worries that the curse can be broken tells me the curses can be broken. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. Now, now remember, it's interesting, because remember there's actually two dooms going on right in Stone Village. There's this one, but there's also the doom of Mandos, right, which says all of the works of the elves will fail and all the four, right? Which in the end does in fact come true, right? So, yeah, so I mean, it's, it's, inter it's really interesting how, again, Tolkien is, is raising the issue of sort of free will and, and divine kind of sovereignty and how these things kind of work together. And, and yeah, I think, I think the story of Tour is, again, a really good picture of when it works well, right? Uh, and this is a picture of when it's working. Well, like just on the issue of sort of big versus small curses, like just want to go back to like Tolkien himself distinguished between curses. Like when when you know people like me or sort of uh, mortals like us make curses, we're like asking others to enact it for us. You know, to make a dragon age reference, you know, like trade will take you kind of thing. It's like you know this other higher thing than me, please do this thing that I'm asking. Whereas Morgoth is like, I am doing this. My power is on you. He's directly sort of enforcing it. So like maybe that's sort of another distinction between sort of like the smaller curses like like meme acts and the big ones like the curse, you know, on the turret. Yeah, right. Well in, in line with that, this is like one of the few moments where Morgoth will admit that he's fallible. Because yeah. if it is like this curse where I am imposing my will upon him, I am circulating and I am doing all of this and he you know, he is the higher power. Yeah. Like, but I'm saying, what does that say about Morgoth when he's got a moment where he's like, what if I, he doesn't say it or what if I fail? Yes. What so called to. master of the faith of Brotherhood. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. What he, you know, the title he gives himself, right? It's more like the assistant master. And, and again, we know that Morgoth has seen things skewed. Yes. Right? So even if he may believe that he is, in fact, the master of the faith of Brotherhood, this, that moment might actually be a moment of clarity for Morgan. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> a little personal growth. Although the Doom of Mandos doesn't actually come into play in Torin's life because Torin's not an elf. So he's actually right. not yeah. affected by That's the true. That's true. Yeah. He's yeah. only affected by the separate right. elves. He does interact with elves, so yes, like the greater tool of Valerian is affected yeah. by the Doom of Mandos, but Turin's personal like life and choices yeah. and most of those affected by the doom right. live Turin. Yeah. But they do sort of perpetuate the doom of Mandos. Well, and it, and it does again show that, like, again, the degree to which dooms are effective, right? So, like, when Mandos yeah. says, this is what's going to happen, uh, that in fact does happen, right, in the end of the summer, by the end of the summer. But yeah, even though he can perpetuate the doom of Mandos, I don't think we can argue that that is part of, like, his decision making kind of idea. Like, as opposed to saying, like, perhaps the curse has something to do with why he reacts or how, what, what, what kind of goes on in his life. The Doom of Mandos doesn't, can't really have that effect on his decisions. It's not on his decisions, but it's, it's interesting how his decisions lead to that. Like the fall of Nargothon and yeah. 
Manic Rob and, yeah, and Arthur Yeah, I mean, well, it's interesting. What, what Doom of Mandos that elves would betray each other. Yeah, there was that, but also that all of any that any of their efforts against Morgoth would not avail them. Mm. That was part of it as well. And so it's interesting, like what Turin actually does, and we're going to get to Nargothrond, so we're jumping ahead. But what he does actually is he does he does in a sense force the, the elves of Nargothrond into action, which is futile. Right? So, so, so yeah, I agree with Alex that, that, that Turin is not bound to, to the Doom of Mandos the way the elves are, right? Um, but Turin, because of who Turin is, he is able to sort of bring the Doom of Mandos into play. He seems like a right? tool of it at this point. So, well, I don't know, because the Doom, like, the thing is, with, like, it's not like, I mean, I think the difference between the Doom of Mandos and the Doom of Morgoth. Right, is that Mandos, I think, like, I don't think Mandos is out to, like, the doom for Mandos is not a punishment. He's not out to Right? Go. Yeah, it's sort of like, it's sort of like, it's sort of like, you are now, you know, the doom is to live out the consequences of your choices, right? But, but that, that, the consequences, the, the degree to which the consequences come into play are still, in some sense, dependent upon your choices. In other words, if all of the, if none of the elves had, if all of the elves had agreed to say, okay, let's just abide by what Umo says, you wouldn't have any, you wouldn't have had any of those battles, right? They would have sort of waited it out until perhaps, well, I don't know. I mean, it's so hard to, to play on this because who knows what would happen? Like, would would Arendil have been born had none of this stuff happened? You don't know what that still happened. I don't know. I don't, but you don't. But you know what I mean. Whereas Morgoth seems to per, to deliberately design things in a way that's going to cause harm. Right. Yeah, so so I do think there's a sense where I don't think Mandos is able to get them. Right? Uh, and maybe that's maybe that's a difference. Yeah. Uh, okay, so we gotta move into uh, the next chapter here. Uh, anything in this chapter? Well, I mean the first, one thing that's interesting of course is we have the the file of Galadriel comes in, comes here, right? You notice that? What? The, the, aren't the lamps like yeah, these, no, these Noldor possessed many of the Feanor lamps, which were crystals hung in a fine chain net, the crystals being ever shining with an inner blue radiance, marvelous for finding the way in the darkness of night and the tunnels. Of these lamps, they themselves did not know the secret. I think I think Gladriel's, I think that's the name. That's very interesting. I, I yeah. The chain of silver. Because, you know, Gladriel, she just... Uh, Okay, so here we go. This is, of course, we have this this terrible moment, um, and this is it happens actually pretty early in the chapter. It makes you wonder, like, what kind of stories you get from like the mining elves and like anyone who was captured by Morgoth and put to work kind of thing. Like, there's this huge rebellion they talk about where they like turn on the guardsmen and they like escape somehow. Like, I thought that was just more... about like uh, Gwyndor in particular. I, I didn't. No, there was like, a whole group of them.
I think that I, I pro I've probably said this before, but I think that uh, this the the chasing of the orcs by Beleg to rescue Turin is repeated in the story of the Three Hunters in the Lord of the Rings. I actually heard that piece of soundtrack in my head when I read that scene. It's like da 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 Yeah, and I'm trying to think if this made it, if he made it this far in the poem. I don't think he did. Yeah, Dan. I have an update. Okay, the, awesome. The file of Galadriel was yeah. a crystal file filled with water from her fountain, which held the light of Arendelle's star. Aha, they are different. 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 Where, yes. where is that from? Oh, Lord of, Lord of the Rings, Ricky. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. It's like, how, where, where, and do they give a footnote or anything? Yes, Dan? they do. They do. You know, they always, say where that's coming they always from. give footnotes, right? You know, if you would well, bother to look at it, you well, would know. I'm waiting, right? Where, is it, where are they getting that from? Is it from somewhere in the history of Middle-earth? Do we trust um, the Tolkien gateway? That is... I uh, no. <laughs> no all I mean, I trust it as much as I trust the Tolkien gateway. I still like to see that. I feel like, personally, the file of Galadriel is another one of those things where she took all the notes and did all the... where it's not necessarily a Feanorian lamp because it is filled with the light of Arendelle, which... That like when she's kind of like she's like replicating so, the same technique. Yeah, like Fan, like Feanor was like sort of more of like an artificer, so he used like crystals and this sort of thing to artificially create it. But she seems to kind of like you know achieve the same effect with a different like sort of medium. Yeah, I mean she she, I mean in, in there there is a sense in in Tolkien's mythology that Galadriel is equal if not greater than Feanor, or the other way around. Feanor maybe sort of. But I mean, she would be like the next, yeah, you know, the next best. And and it's it is possible that that it is something different, but it's based on this, not necessarily that it's one of these. I know in the movie, she yeah. says, you know, the the light of a regular most beloved star, but I don't know if she says that in the book. Yeah, she. I just yeah. read the quote. I was about to say that the the name of the file translates directly, like something hail um, the star on, on the brow of the window. Okay. But um, that could even just be a reference to. Well, the Feanorian lamps aren't, aren't the light of the trees. No. This says it's the light of the silver elves mm -hmm. in the file of Galadriel. So, like, it's it's still, well, you could say it's kind of the light of the trees, only like twice removed kind of thing. Yeah. But yes. those, the Feanorian lamps aren't the light of the trees. Yeah. No. Not that we could tell. <laughs> anyway. 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 I, I think it's maybe enough to say that uh, Galadriel did get some lessons from, maybe from Feanor and whatever. Yeah, Alex. Are you talking about Blindor now? Yes, let's talk about it. Okay, because I got a text-in thought from Jesse. It's very good. So oh. I'm going to read it to you. <laughs> After he left? Yeah, he was like, can you bring something up for me? And I was like, if only if I like it. <laughs> okay, but his thought is, um, the curse of Morgoth is very vague, and while bad things happen to Torrid, if we didn't know about the curse itself, we wouldn't ascribe anything up until this point other to, like, to it other than like Torrid's own pride and anger. And he only learns about the curse in this chapter, Death of Beleg, and ascribes everything bad that's happened to him to the curse, much the same way that people do with like horoscopes. Uh -huh. Which could mean that Gwyndor was allowed to escape in order to make Torrin aware of his curse and stop him from recognizing his own faults, and he would attribute everything to the curse, and then not become a better person, because he attributes all of his bad things in life to the curse, as opposed to actually... So, so, so say, the, say the last part again. Um, so, Gwyndor yeah. escapes from Morgoth, right. and because of Gwyndor, Turin is aware of the curse that's put upon him. Mm -hmm. And so Jesse says, it's possible that Gwyndor was allowed to escape in order, or allowed not like allowed, or, not, yeah. not like 
her escaped because it actually works to Morgoth's advantage that Turin knows about the curse, so that instead of trying to look on his life and reflect on his anger and his and his uh, and his rashness, can he it. can now just be like, oh, it's all because of the curse, and doesn't actually self-reflect uh, and improve right. as a person. Yeah, yeah, that could so be. Anyway, that makes sense. It's like a yes. that was kind of Yeah, I feel that it was worth worth expressing. Yeah. I, th- I think so too. Yeah, That's I, think why I, think I, I think you made the right call there, Alex. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I mean, I, but the other thing too, like it's interesting, right? Like, of course, we know it's the curse, and if we didn't know it was a curse, we would attribute it to Turin. But remember how, like, we don't, like in the Hobbit, right? We don't. There's nothing specific that says that the Hobbit, that Bilbo is particularly blessed by Luvatar, no. right? Yet, <laughs> right? Yet we do. We are aware that that Bilbo's good luck seems a little too lucky, right? And so I still think, even if we didn't know anything about the curse, we might, if we're if we were as smart as I think we are, kind of go, okay, like with the Cyrus incident, for example, it's like, okay, this is bad luck, but this is like really bad luck, right? And now, of course, with 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 the Baleg, it, it this is like the most, this is the worst of it, right? Yeah. This moment. Well, right. this is interesting now because no, because like even if we don't know about the curse, well, I don't think it's torn. Is the placebo effect? enacted upon us as the readers, we're told there's a curse, or are we attributing everything to it, even though... Well, we're not attributing everything to it, right? We're acknowledging that Turin's got it. <laughs> yeah, we're acknowledging right? the Turin is yeah. <laughs> yeah, even like me, who's a big proponent of the curse, I admit that it's not everything, it's just, but it is like a significant factor in his life. Yeah, Alex? Well, yeah, and even if we know it's the curse, and we can say, okay, even if we didn't read about the curse, his blood seems really bad, I still think it's valid to say that Turin learning about the curse is yes. a bigger deal. Right. Because then that definitely has, like, yeah, that effect where it's like, well, I don't need self-reflection anymore. My right. life sucks because I'm cursed, not right. because exactly. I'm a horrible person. I'm just going yeah. to write 20 yeah. or something else. Yeah. Well, right. I killed yes. my best friend, stupid curse. Yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> that wasn't because of me at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Although, like, when, okay, so, okay, so let's see. Well, let's just see maybe if this chapter helps, like, if that, if, what, how that plays out um, so, of course, you have the moment, right? When all in camp were sleeping, Belek took up his bow and in the dark he shot four of the wolf sentinels on the cell side, one by one, and silently, super cool. Mm. Then in great peril they entered in and they found to her fettered hand and foot and tied to a tree. All about knights that had been cast at him by his tormentors were embedded in the trunk, but he was not hurt. Again, that's not unusual for Turin, right? Somehow he's protected from, <laughs> right? Um, and and he was senseless in a drugged stupor or swooned in a sleep of utter weariness. Then Balek and Gundar cut the bonds from the tree and bore Turin out of the camp, but he was too heavy to carry far, and they could go no further than to a thicket of thorn trees high on the slopes above the camp. There they laid him down, and now the storm drew nearer, and lightning flashed on Thangoradrim. Balek drew his sword Angachel, and with it he cut the fetters that bound Turin. But fate that day was more strong, for the blade of Aeol, the dark elf, slipped in his hand and pricked Turin's foot. But the fate was that little too small strong. It's like weather. It's fate. <laughs> Much fate. Yeah, I don't know what that is. Okay, sorry, I wasn't going to talk about the fate. Okay, that's fine. Okay, but um, I was, I never noticed before until I read the chapter this time that um, it says that Turin was not hurt. He was just drugged in a stupor, which I think is a very interesting uh, detail. Because, like, I always assumed that Turin was, like, being tortured and, like, they were actually, like, cutting him before and that's why, like, when he was cut, he was like, oh, this is just, like, or it's torturing me again. So I think it's very interesting that he, that it says specifically that he wasn't 
like they had not been like cutting him before. This was mm -hmm. the first time. Well, they do have like orders directly from Morgoth saying, "Bring him to me." So maybe you know they're sort of thinking that if we touch him at all, our master will be displeased. Like they want to sort of present him unmolested to oh, Morgoth. To be fair, though, they did tie him to a tree and do the whole like circus knife throwing. Act. Yeah, so really that's enough. To bring there, there I guess the knife that. is coming towards your face. They're touching him psychologically. But as for drugging him. Yeah. I mean, a drug tour is probably a lot easier to transport. He's pretty tough, and he could kill them all. As we see, he's very surly. <laughs> so that could increase his uh, fear of them mm -hmm. yeah. not knowing where the knives are actually going to go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know which, I don't know, I mean, this is all good, but in terms of the fate, I don't know what fate is, because here it seems almost like it's the, it's Ale that is the one that, right? It's, it's, it's it's the sword, it's right? That Melian. Well, it's not, right? Because well, they warned him about it. Yeah, Melian yeah, right? said, you know. I don't know. I don't know if that's the fate that's stronger that day, though. That mm -hmm. that fate that day, the fate that day was when when Bellet chose that as his sword. Mm -hmm. That's a different fate. The fate that day that we're referring to now, I think, is Torin's. Yeah. Yeah. Well, especially because like they're so close to Morgoth's stronghold. Seems like you know, by proximity, you're kind of even more at risk. Also, who whips out a sword to cut a bone? Don't you have a knife? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's rather unusual. A non sentient knife that won't betray you? Watermelon, anyone? <laughs> <laughs> uh, at least throw it in there. So. All of a sudden, you like cut yourself <laughs> like, yeah. you like stab yourself in the back and you're trying to like. Yeah, my, my my sense here is this this is more enough. Yeah, I believe this more. Yeah, this is one of the clearest moments I think where it seems like it yeah. really is just Torin being dumb. Yeah, yeah it goes because because, because goes unlike yeah, and unlike unlike the Cyros incident, Torin's reaction here is actually completely understandable. Yeah, yeah, he's been right. yeah, he's been captured. Also, also, which which it said like kind of says that. Right? Also, unlike a lot of the other bad luck, it's really emphasized and pointed out that fate was. Different or whatever the wording is this day. Yeah, so that makes you think of the curse, right? Yeah. Yeah. But you do have, and again, you know, you have the great storm rode up out of the west, capital yeah. W West, and thunder rumbled far out. And I don't know what to make of that. It's it's yeah. just a laugh in your face moment. Exactly. From, from the battle. No, it I, is. It I has agree. to be. He's, it's Monway, Lord of the Winds. It has to be. But everything I know of Monway, he doesn't do that. Well, I, he is. I think you're just so I'm telling you now, the book is telling I think you're just playing devil's advocate, Rick. And you're well, no, I, I mean, you'd have to show me in Silmarillion Monway acting in that way. He's like, actually hey. playing God's advocate. Right? TBH. Because he's not <laughs> acting. Yeah, no, 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 Monway is not a Lucha. No, don't get. No, <laughs> <laughs> He's really. But, but no, I mean, I mean, I mean, if this, if it, if the Valor. Okay, I mean, it's Tolkis. I mean, like it's. it's well, I mean, again, it's you so, know, so we have to see. Us here. So okay, let, yeah. So let's hear other options. We got Alex and Corinne. Oh yeah, I was just gonna point out, like, whenever you think of the Valar, it just seems like a really bad time to be evoked. Honestly, if you're gonna be evoked after Corinne killed his best friend. Well, this is before. Like, this is right before. Right? No. I thought this was during the like, literally. No. Right after. Yeah, right after. Right after when the orcs are roused. Hence. It's after he kills. Oh, okay. So it starts, but it starts before, right? A great storm roared out of the west when they're coming into the camp. Well, Still, right? all of this is just a super bad time. If you're the Valar and you want to be known as the good guys who are trying to help people, not a good 
time to announce your presence. That was right. Not that was, but but where where does it come up afterwards again? It's like <laughs> but now in the camp beneath your arcs were aroused and then like they were sent to Sir Tear Down. Oh yeah. Thunder came out of the west, believing they were sent by to them by the great enemies beyond the sea. Oh right, right, right. Yeah. Like this like before, that was them pulling up a front row seat to then making popcorn to watch while this bunch would pull. They're just them saying, Oh, this is gonna be a good show. Again, <laughs> that's an interesting theory, but I would like to see from the text where the Valor act in that way. Okay, Corinne. Well, they don't act. Because I, yes. I'm sorry guys, I just don't feel like shitting on the I love you. <laughs> I don't know. Part, I mean, part of it is Storm coming out of the West, it freaks the Orcs the hell out, and they're not willing to move from their camp. Right. So in that way, it's helpful. When it comes for that's probably you know, about as gentle as they can get. Probably, yeah, <laughs> probably is. It's like, yeah, it's loud and obnoxious and do all those things. And then it's after Belly dies, and you know, because I'm esoteric and all that. Um, how, how about it's just them gathering Belly's soul back to Mando's oh. sort of thing, and it's not a. There, if that happened to every man, though, or Belly. But this is the one th- the one story of men in the Silmarillion that they you know they actually care about. They put the full story in, and this is like a turning point, absolute tragic moment, and where fate you know you have this so close to Fangorder, and you have that sort of fate clashing with the fate that Turin could have. Yeah, and, and it's yeah, not and and you have. And you have this, right, the line at the end, right, thus ended Belic's stronghold, truest of friends, greatest in skill of all that harbored in the woods of Galarian in the elder days, at the hand of him whom he most loved, right? So so there is this, you can almost imagine, like, Belic seems to be elevated in some sense, and you could imagine the Valar having that response. I mean, soul death, is so great, right? it burns his body to ashes when it goes to yeah. Valar, so it's not unreasonable that someone of that... Well, and Belek spends his time amongst, you know, like Turin and Fingal and Meli and all these really high figures. Like he, th- those are like the that's the circle that he hangs out in. So like you know, it sort of elevates him triple, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. I mean, this is all. I mean, these are all, in a sense, they're all possible, right? They are, right? I mean, I mean, I mean, maybe this would be a question that we could ask the king sometime. What is this about? He, he might say, to yeah, he might say, yeah, you know, I missed what that. Say. Yeah, exactly. You know, I never got to editing that. Out. This is like this is like the Venn diagram where it's like what yeah. the author says, what your English teacher says it means, and what the author actually meant. So, of so it was just like guys. Instead of meaning Socrates in the other one, we mean Tolkien. It's like talk. When does Gwyndor tell him about the curse? Right After at the this, very right? end. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, because no, of course, nowhere in the chapter does he blame the curse on. Basically, Tour just says, hmm. Yeah, but but this this is this is the probably the the, the no there's a second there is a worse yeah. 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 yeah but it this is, is but I would say like, this is the second worst thing this is that's top like five, super yes. yeah maybe the third depending on which one you're in so but at least it's in the top three top five and I would say for sure the second but I might put yours at number three if it's the one but anyway. it's, it's the one it's the one <laughs> what's number like how is there a third there's one worst thing that happens in Tor's life. <laughs> what? And technically well, Neodor's. No, there, there's one I think that, that might even be... Okay. Anyway. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll, we'll get to yeah. it. Yeah. Well, yeah. is it the end of it? Because there's a worst thing. When we're, when we're done with 
showed up her, we ranked the worst. That should be a last challenge. challenge. That would be a good challenge. Yeah, yeah. We, rank, we rank them. Yes, okay. Uh, okay, so. Uh, okay, so what's our time, by the way? It's 1.20. Oh, okay, well. So yeah, okay, so, so a couple things. One is, of course, you have his reaction, um, unmoving, unweeping beside the body of Beleg, and then you have the next page over, that line I read, um, at the hand of him whom he most loved, and that grief was graven on the face of Turin and never faded. Just above that, you have him leaving, bearing a burden heavy, heavier than their bonds. I mean, there, this just piles up how this is, how what this has done to Turin, right? And of course, he is completely sort of almost comatose until he gets to catatonic, right? Until he gets to uh, Ivrin's Lake, right? Uh, what does it say about Ivrin's Lake? How, like, how is that? It's not. Is it this time? Yeah. Uh -huh. Endless laughter. I think it's the first time the word laughter shows up since Lalith. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, I think that, that means something. Yeah. Right? I think it's, it's been a while. Yeah. And of course, we get the spirit of Bumo in the waters. And this is what, what heals to her. <coughs> and this is also, uh, <coughs> one of these moments, I think, when Tour hits the wall, right? And, and, and uh, I mean, need to hear, I don't think, I don't think Tolkien ever wrote the romance. And he said, I've never seen it. That should have been charged. Yeah. Right? Don't like Liar, cool belly. Yeah. I thought yeah. it said later, cool belly at first. <laughs> <laughs> Which liar, honestly, that's liar, how right? I would write it. Later. AI is an ice right? It's liar. Yeah, definitely. Liar, cool belly. Yeah, because like, we can see it with like my ghost. Right. Yeah. Uh, okay, and then they end up in Nargothland. I just love that last line. It's like you know this is significant. <coughs> Right. It's like when, you know, when meme shows, like, thus meme entered right. into the tale of the tour. It's yeah. like, you know, this is a significant event. We all know how well that turns out. Yeah. Not as well as other people. Like, honestly, I feel like the children's horn is just like a linear, <laughs> like, shitstorm. It just, it just gets worse. Like, everything yeah. that happens is just worse and yeah. worse and worse. Yeah. 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 Oh, it's yeah. like, oh, this could be good. Oh, no. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I, the fact that he asks uh, after Burin, I think, is, indicates that it's on his mind, right? even though we haven't heard of Burin Burin is involved. And then you have the rumor, as Alex mentioned, and, and Jesse, right? that for the first time, this is the this is the moment where Turin first hears about the curse. So I think this is pretty significant. And he believes it, right? Yeah, Corinne? Do you think that we're supposed to hear a little bit of Baron when we hear Gwyndor and how he's made? He has only, he's like, Baron, he has only one hand? In his escape. That's a little bit. Uh, where, where, where is it? It's talking about after he takes out a knife and stabs one of the guards. Wait a minute. But like, they were using Fenorian lights to bomb him? Yeah. They were over? Yeah. Yep. Because we don't need fire or anything like that. They were? Yeah. Well, they were. Well, that's Gwyndor's life. Gwyndor. That's Gwinder's light, yeah, that's how the miners... Yeah, but he escaped as a miner, and I, I don't remember now. So, no, several miners actually <coughs> told their way out yeah. using the light. Like, they yeah. had, they have their where, own where is, where is this? Okay, give me a sec, give me a sec. 
I know it's in there. It definitely says Gwyngor has only one hand. Yeah. When it's introducing him at the beginning of the chapter. Yeah. These Noldor possessed many of the Feanorian lamps, which were crystal, blah, 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 blah. Um, yeah, they're necklaces. Many of the mining elves thus escaped from the darkness of the mines, for they were able to bore their way out. And then Gwyndor... Yeah, and then... And like, he escaped, but with one hand cut off. And now he lay exhausted under the great yeah, mines. Because he chose not to use the, the method of tunneling his way out. He just went straight for a guard. Yeah, he shut the jugular. Yeah. It's like, right, it's like the second page of the chapter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, well, kind of yeah, after his escape. Well, they may have they may have either had them when they were captured, or they made them under the ground. What? No, it's or no, no, another of those. There's a third option. Use what you're saying. No, I thought possessed many of the Feanorians. Yeah, they had them when they were captured. Yeah, they're necklaces. That's what the silver came in. You think that that's the first thing that they were taking away? You know? Well, but that's what they used to mine. You, 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 you captured oh, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, right. slaves that don't need fire to see. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So, okay, okay well. Plus fire is probably a bad idea. Depends on what you're mining. Mining's pretty dangerous. Yeah. Might as well use like elves that are good at it. Also, mining Tangler over is probably the most dangerous of all. Like the most cool. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you're only mining in Moria. Well, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I think this is the first time that we get a hint of elves being good at mining. That's true. Well, yeah. Well, it's like they, they really haven't had like much sort of, you know. Yeah, we like, don't get a sense they're good at mining, but they were good at getting gems. Yeah, like, yeah. Or that was their thing. They they like to have. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. They like to get forage gems. and make. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, you're right. I guess. Yeah, it's just like not really thoroughly discussed though. But like we assumed they would have like some knowledge. So then you would think their like pettiness with the dwarves is even more petty. Yeah. <laughs> that was, like, same also, thing. it doesn't really yeah. say that they're good at it. It just says they're forced to do it. Yeah, that's true. You can force all of it. Well, it says for a few of the Noldor who Morgoth took capture were put to death because of their skill in mining for metals and gems. So they seem yeah. to have a skill around this. So yeah, because I guess if they're like spending most of their time making and like crafting all these wonderful things, one would assume they would know how to get the materials in the first place. Well, yeah, I mean, I assume it now that I've read it, but I've never assumed it until this point because I've never associated them with mining. That's the dwarves who would have mined. Well, it's, it's called logic, you know, just like logical reasoning. Okay. Damn. <laughs> Rick's done with this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just like Rick rolling with tire. I think, I think we're supposed to, I don't know why we're supposed to hear Baron, but like, I feel like that's a very yeah, weird where is that detail again? to Okay.
spend forever, forever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Um, what do I have? Why do I have it's a really red? Focused today. <laughs> 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 we do have some good conversations. That was a good conversation. Yeah. And you know, and I, I, I'm, I'm the first to admit when I'm maybe wrong. When I might be wrong. Possibly, perhaps, maybe. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, that's that's sort of all that I got here. So I guess we can.